Thanks for tuning in to Best Show Ever, a podcast presented by the Englert Theater. In this week's episode, we talk with Tara McGovern and Justin LaDuke, two ensemble members for the musical project known as Esteban and the Children of the Sun. We also hear from Jen Knights, marketing and community engagement specialist for the School of Social Work and the host of their new podcast, Wild Bill's Cup of Social Justice. But first, we have a quick announcement. The Englert family is once again expanding. We're seeking candidates for three key positions in our organization, including a senior programming manager, a marketing manager, and a membership coordinator. Join us in our mission of activating positive community growth through the arts and apply today. Tara McGovern and Justin LaDuke are contributing collaborators on the Esteban and the Children of the Sun musical suite, which is set to premiere at the Englert this Sunday, October 3rd. The story follows the transcontinental journey of Esteban de Durantes, the first African slave to be taken to the New World. The production was organized by John Rapson, who was a prolific composer and revered educator. Esteban was his final musical project. Tara and Justin, thank you so much for being here today for an early edition of the Best Show Ever podcast. So appreciate you two. Thank you, Ellie, for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Okay, so I want to hear about the musical aspects of the Esteban production. And would you be would one of you be able to just briefly describe some of the sounds or genres of music that we'll be hearing. Yeah, we have four composers on this project. Um, John Rapson, of course, who did nearly all of the orchestrations and arrangements as well. Um, We also have Kevin Burt, the legendary blues musician. Kevin Burt has Mm -hmm. given us four songs for this performance. Um, Miguel Espinoza is a flamenco guitarist from Colorado who will be here with this band performing. And then of course, Nielo Gallione, who is um, well known um, in the community since Atamali Louie. And and we all had the opportunity to work with Nielo on that. So we have jazz and uh, flamenco. Um, We have the instrument that Nielo plays is the North African mandole. So we have some of that flavor. Um, We're doing one traditional Sephardic song. Um, It's, it's a lot of it's a lot of different um, kinds of music, but the story really encompasses a lot of the world and it's a lot of different time periods. Mm, yeah, so it ties all of the different kinds of sounds together. That is so cool. I'm mm-hmm. I feel like we're gonna be we're gonna feel like we're traveling. Like yeah, I feel like we're physically traveling um, throughout the course of this production. What did the process? for creating the music um, kind of look like from beginning to end? Um, and how were you two able to contribute, you know, your own artistic prowess to the songs? That's a great question. Justin, do you remember when he first started talking about it? I was talking about this year, like three or four years ago, I feel yeah. like. He would, he would bring it up and he said, you know, I don't know if I want to do another whole project like a Hatamali Louis style thing because it's a lot I mean there's so many <laughs> pieces to bring together um and I think when you know he, he 
decided to go for it. I mean, he really went for it. it the, the scope of this thing feels quite a bit bigger. It is. Uh, it's uh, nuts. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. I mean, like, you know, I think we had just a couple, I think it was, it was John and Danielle and Dave Moore on the last project. Mm-hmm. Those guys are all local here, but now we have folks who are coming in from, you know, like the, the flamenco folks that are coming in mm-hmm. from out of town here to do this. Um, so it's, it feels quite a bit bigger. Um, uh, and it, I mean, it, it is like, you know, Terry, you were saying it's, it's four different composers. I mean, it's spanning, you know, the, the North African portion of Esteban's life with Danielle. Mm-hmm. It's the, the Spanish portion with the flamenco folks. It's the jazz and blues connection between John and Kevin, you know, when they make it to the bayou. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a blast to play, honestly. It's, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, definitely not boring you know there's you know, <laughs> there's gigs that you play where it's like okay this is the same thing for three hours four hours or whatever and it sure. gets gets to be a little bit you know sometimes I mean all, music is almost always fun to play sometimes it's work yeah. this is not work this is like right on your toes at all moments you know yeah. <laughs> like what's what's coming next because it's not just like you know the show is not just a spoiler one uh, you know, okay, we're gonna do all the flamenco tunes here. No, it's like flipping no. earth, and yeah, it's 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 super fun. I'm excited for people to see it. So yeah, and from the audience perspective, they're literally. I mean, we've heard this said before about a lot of performances, but there literally is something for everyone <laughs> like, in yeah. terms of the types of music. And I love hearing Kevin talk about his contribution because, um, you know, a lot of what Kevin is doing, as well as Caleb, who is our our wonderful writer and who's our spoken word poet who's performing the dialogues with Kevin, a lot of what they're doing is pulling the story into a modern context. Um, And so Kevin has given us music, blues, that existed like way after some of the elements of the story began, but that has has to do with the modern context of, um, of the storytelling themes that have gone that far back and continue on into the present. As Caleb and Kevin recently said on the interview, this is a black story told by black men. And, um, and it's a story that we haven't heard before um, in, a, in most of our community, most of the world. And, and so we're providing support for that story coming through. Mm. Yeah, that is beautiful. The, the scope is definitely vast, but the vision is there tying everything together. And I, I just really... Ha- I'm having a hard time even wrapping my head around like I have a four person band that I play music with and literally just with them it's like okay what time can we okay can you okay he can't make it okay are you gonna play this part oh my gosh where you know like there's so many people on this production working together collaboratively and I think it's gonna be explosive like the, the amount of talent going into this production like I kept reading the names of who was going to be there I'm like what him Kevin no way (laughs) so yeah I am I am you can tell I'm like really I'm really jacked about this and just such a community centered um piece as well like just Mm -hmm. so involved around love and community and collaboration you know, what, what was that part of 
of all of this for you, like working so closely with other people, working so closely with the composers, with John, like what did that provide for you as musicians and people? Yeah, I mean, I first started playing with some of these wonderful musicians in Hot Tamale Louie, and many of them had played together previously. Um, and also many of us had individual relationships with John. He was our teacher in the case of, of a lot of us. Um, mm -hmm. And so that collaborative aspect that brought us all together, um, it just really lives in this performance. But like Justin was saying how John was saying, oh, I'm not sure if I want to do another full scope. And then of course this exploded well beyond the bounds <laughs> of Hot yeah. anyway, I think that we can attribute that to really all of us having like a deep commitment and a big love for John and, and wanting to um, do what we could do to get this story told. Um, and also that we value, as John does, we value telling individual stories and trying to provide support for those stories in whatever way that we can as an ensemble. Yeah, this one was a really particularly special one, given that it was, you know, John's sort of last piece of work that he gave to the world. I mean, he was a, a pretty prolific composer throughout his life. He's got a lot mm -hmm. of albums and touched a lot of different things. Um, and uh, this piece to me just really speaks to his sort of um, ins insatiable curiosity about the world that, mm -hmm. I mean, he, he would always, you know, whenever I saw, I saw him over the years, he would always be talking about, I read this book and I just, yeah. you know, it, had, it was just di constantly digesting new ideas and new ways of thinking and being in the world. And even this one evolved. It was originally, you know, focused on Cabeza de Vaca, one of the conquistadors. Right. And through the course of the story, John became more interested in, well, what about the story of Esteban that's never been told mm -hmm. here? Like, and let's center some different voices. And I, I think that just speaks to John's, you know, um, uh, humility and compassion and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, that, that, that curiosity. So it all comes out in the music and I'm just, I'm, I'm, yeah, it's, it's special to be a part of it, you know, given mm -hmm. that John, I wish John could be here to see it, but right. we're going to do our best to, 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 to give it what it deserves. So. Yeah, I love Justin, like that you said curiosity, because I feel like um, I when I'm thinking about like, I've, I've had a lot of questions asked of me, like, what is John's legacy? And, um, you know, how, how are we carrying that forward? And I feel like John, for me, both as a teacher and also as a friend, and um, I feel like he really approached the world with that curiosity and kindness. It, at times that many of us would be approaching the world with fear. And so mm. I don't, I think that that curiosity, like that really speaks to me when I hear you say curiosity, because I feel like just John was really interested in individual stories and he was really interested in people's lives. Um, and I just think that we could all be better served by uh, approaching things that we don't understand with curiosity and kindness as opposed to approaching things that we don't understand yet with fear or um, discomfort. Mm. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great takeaway, a great lesson to be learned. Okay, last, you know, question, request. Give your tiniest pitch, you know, why do people need to see this production? What would you tell them that they're like a little bit on the fence, like, oh, Sunday's, I like 
um, to go to the park. <laughs> Why should they come to the, <laughs> I, I, that's what I thought of. Why should they come to the Angler <laughs> at 3 p.m. instead of whatever they're doing in their everyday lives? Um, I play with, you know, I've played a lot of different music over the years, but this is some of the most fun I've, I've had playing music, honestly. Mm -hmm. And it's some of the most interesting, um, uh, eclectic group of music that I've had the opportunity to, to apply myself to. So, uh, you know, that's my pitch right there. That's telling. <laughs> when the musicians part. are having fun, that's yeah. going to be what you want to go see. Like yeah. that is the biggest thing for me at least. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think I would say this is um this is something that you have never seen before and it's something that you may never see again. <laughs> and um it's a story that has not been properly told. It's actually a travesty how many stories we haven't had centered for us in mm -hmm. American history. There's so many mm -hmm. things that we have never learned about. And um, some of that was um, unintentional, but a lot of it was intentional um, because of the way that history is presented. So in Iowa, you know, which is really the birth of the 1619 project um, because of the creator of that being from Waterloo. In this state, where um, it's illegal for, for teachers to teach about uh, systemic racism. It's illegal to teach about critical race theory. Um, I feel like this is even more important that you have an opportunity to learn a story that you are not likely to hear unless you go looking for it. And it's our responsibility to continue to center and uplift those stories. Mm, beautiful. Well, you two, so excited for the performance. I know you guys are super busy this week. So thanks for taking a few minutes outside to uh, come chat with us. Yes, thank you. We'll be right back in conversation with Jen Knights after a quick word from our development director, Katie Roach. Did you know that you could be promoting your business, organization, or event to Best Show Ever podcast listeners by placing an ad here on the show? Sponsoring Best Show Ever or other Inglert programming ties your brand to a local legacy, the Inglert Theater, and your support of the Inglert now means more than ever before. In 2020, we experienced a significant revenue shortfall brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Through this financially tumultuous time, we're producing new digital productions, including this podcast, our Stages Concert Series, and Witching Hour Festival, all to inspire positive community growth through the arts. Packages range from $100 on up. Our investment in the arts community is only possible with support from sponsors like you and art supporters are known for supporting those that support the arts. Visit englert.org sponsorship for all of the information about how to advertise. I mean, you're listening right now. Place your ad here, englert.org sponsorship. Jen Knights is joining us today as the Marketing and Community Engagement Specialist for the UI School of Social Work and the host of their new podcast, Wild Bill's Cup of Social Justice. Jen, thank you so much for being here on the Best Show Ever podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you. So this is not new territory for Jen because she actually just started doing a podcast for Wild Bills with Stephen Cummings. 
Um, and I got a chance to listen to the first episode, which was wonderful. And it told some of the, the history, the rich history of uh, Wild Bill's coffee shop. Can you give us just the Sparknotes version of the origin story? Yeah, and I I do encourage people to listen to the podcast um, Wild Bill's Cup of Social Justice because there's so many details in that first episode that I won't have time to tell. Um, But I will say that, so Wild Bill's Coffee Shop, a lot of people in Iowa City are familiar with it. It was a coffee shop in the School of Social Work that operated for 46 Mm. years, um, um, staffed by people with disabilities. And when it first began um, in 1975, it was actually created by the then director of the school, Tom Walls, um, in part to give a job to this man, Bill Sachter, um, who was a man with an intellectual disability, who was his guardian, was on staff at the School of Social Work. And that that staff member, Barry Morrow, like kind of needed something worthwhile for Bill to do, for one thing. And then the other part of it was that as a school of social work, and this being in the context of a time in history when people with disabilities had been institutionalized for decades, um, at this point in time, they were starting to be deinstitutionalized. So people like Bill, who lived in a mental hospital or state school, they had lots of different words or names for them. Um, he'd been institutionalized his entire life, so from like age seven to age fifty-one, <laughs> and and he was lucky to find a friend like Barry who kind of t- took care of him. Barry and his wife Bev, um, but social work students at that point in time, um, and students in general, people in general, <laughs> didn't have like direct access and interaction with people who ha- were differently abled. Um, because the, the the society had been sort of just tucking them away in institutions for a long time. So for social work students who were learning how to be social workers, how to be professionals assisting others, um, this was actually a learning lab where they could have real interactions with a person who had disability and kind of get some experience in that area. Um, and, and over the years, after Bill died, he, he died in 1983. So it really was just a kind of a short window of time when it was Bill himself running wild bills. Um, but we then ended up employing person after person with disabilities. And by the time we stopped having a coffee shop, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, we had, I think it was 13 employees who would come in and, and work like a shift a week or sometimes, you know, be backups or subs, but um, all different kinds of disabilities. So some were intellectual, some were physical, some were both, um, just a wide range of folks with different kinds of um, things going Mm on. And from Mm -hmm. my experience with Wild Bills when I first came to Iowa City, I mean, it just seemed to really expand itself into being just a cultural hub in general. Like there were arts gatherings, performances, activists, um, meetings, like all sorts of things were happening in mm-hmm. in that space. Mm-hmm. And then you could also uh, get a nice milkshake um, or a cup of coffee yeah. while you're there. Um, yeah, there were many iterations over the years. Um, lots of people had great ideas that they tried out. Some worked, some didn't. Um, Overall, we're actually retaining quite a lot of that history, that cultural history of 
Wild Bill's um, being a gathering place, being a place for people to get together and work on projects. And in particular, right now, we're really focusing all of that on the idea of advancing, advancing social justice through social work and the helping professions. Um, so beyond just the scope of disability, which has been sort of the specialty of Wild Bills um, for a long time, we're also really trying to expand on our vision statement in the School of Social Work, which is making social justice work. Mm. Um, so it's really all about sort of hands-on learning. Um, it's still considered to be a learning lab, but it's really focused on real-life application of social work concepts um, to promote social justice. There's a, a huge range of things that that can encompass, and we're still figuring that mm -hmm. out. Um, we actually invite members of the community, not just social work students and faculty and staff, but just any all kinds of people who are interested in social justice to get involved with what we're doing. What does the current iteration of Wild Bill's look like? Yeah, so the physical space is pretty much the same right now as it would have been if you had come in before the pandemic closed the coffee shop back in 2020. Um, so it's a, it's a formal former kindergarten classroom from back when North Hall was an elementary school and a uh, frankly a learning lab for College of Education students learning to be teachers. Um, and so the only thing that's different at this point physically is that we're no longer making and selling coffee and food. Um, so we still have kind of the mismatched tables and chairs. Um, we're getting rid of the noisy cooler that has been in there for a long time because we're actually using it as a classroom now for we're starting with a social work skills lab uh, that's actually taking place in there every week. Um, but we're also kind of reaching out to student groups like the University of Iowa Students for Disabilities Awareness and Advocacy, which is also called USTA. Um, they had a gathering in our space last week, and we we're inviting them to come and like meet there regularly, um, groups like that. But we're also, this is the thing that I'm super excited about, because th this podcast that, that you mm -hmm. mentioned that we have started, um, cupofjustice.org is where to find it, also on all the other streaming platforms. Um, so we have actually put together sort of a collection of various pieces of equipment that we're using to record the podcast now. But our goal is to actually create a recording studio that's sort of a push button thing where um, social work students and other folks can actually sign up to use it and access it themselves. So that's sort of part of our long range goals. We're looking for funding for that. We're kind of planning out what all the pieces of equipment are that we still need to get and, you know, curious about if we can set up a, a like a booth, you know, where it's actually soundproof instead of uh, doing the closet thing or ultimately we want to do a recording studio in Wild Bills that will be accessible to other people who are working on podcasts that have to do with social justice or video blogs or you know, interviews for classes. Um, and we are aiming to really tie it in with the curriculum for social work students as well. Mm. I love that that vehicle for storytelling is being uh, intentionally continued in this space because that has so much to do with, you know, the story of Bill Sector and the story of Wild Bills. And then just in, oh, in yeah. general, like storytelling as a means of connecting across culture and across ability levels and 
So true. And in fact, you're right. You know, that's a big part of the story that it's it's hard to like get it all out is that, you know, that staff member that I mentioned earlier, Barry Morrow, the whole reason that that Bill Sachter is famous is because Barry wrote a -hmm. movie called Bill which was about Bill Sachter, about this friend of his that he that he was the guardian for and that experience. Um, it, it was like on NBC as it was a made for TV movie. So like millions, literally millions of Americans got to to see the story of Bill Sachter. And he, at that time, he was actually probably one of the first characters on uh, mainstream television who had a disability, who was a fully formed character who was lovable and meaningful and you know had real relationships because so often representation of people with disabilities you know they were either um, buffoons or they were comic relief or they were maybe even villains you know so so this was actually a real turning point for people's perspectives on folks with disabilities and then Barry <laughs> and left the school of social work of course cuz he's now a movie writer and producer and he ended up also writing the story for the movie Rain Man um which was the biggest mm-hmm. movie of 1988 and like i think it was you know nominated for oscars probably won some i'm sorry i'm not thinking of the exact details of which were won and which were nominated at this point. Um, but it was huge. And that was also based on the real story of a person with disability um, who, who was actually a person with autism. And, and that, you know, that's kind of part of the legacy here at the University of Iowa and in Iowa City, too, being a literary town where lots of folks come from diverse backgrounds or even really modest backgrounds and end up telling these big, huge stories Um, that resonates so much with people far and wide. Mm. Well, speaking of storytelling and arts and social justice activism, let's hear about your best show ever story. And I know you're going to tell it super beautifully. So take it away, Jen. Yes, yes. Well, um, first I'll say this was my best show ever. And there have been so many good ones, um, but this one was in the in the context of Mission Creek Festival, which always brings it. <laughs> I mean, and I say this as a person who was a giant fan of Mission Creek for years, and then became a staff member, um, working on marketing and community engagement for the festival. But so over the years, so I have two kids. When I started going to Mission Creek, my kids were little. Um, like really little. <laughs> Years later, as 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 they got older, I finally started being able to bring my kids along to some of these shows. Um, and there's there's always quite a range, you know. Some of the things I would never bring my kid to, you know, Gabe's <laughs> show at midnight or one a.m. No, um, but this one show was Jamila Woods, um, and she had Psalm One opening for her, and another artist who performed with Psalm One, whose name I'm not remembering right this minute. Um, but they kind of performed as a duo. I, the thing I'm getting at is I brought my daughter with me. And partially, you know, this was in 2018. So we were kind of in the thick of a really dark time, I think, um, for women. It felt like that to me, honestly, after Trump was elected and, and there was so much in in the in the press and in current events um, where women were just continuing to be not heard and 
demeaned and belittled. And um, I can think of the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court confirmations, or I was very disappointed that we would both elect a president and confirm a Supreme Court justice who were known sexual assault perpetrators. Um, but I I saw the lineup on this show and I was like, these are powerful, strong women who are using their voices for good to not only demand social justice, but also to celebrate uh, life as a woman, to be fully human, fully sexual, you know, and and fully feeling in their emotions. Like I think about the song Holy by Jamila Woods, which is says, you know, um, I'm not lonely, I'm alone, and I'm holy on my own. And I just, I was like, this is what I want my daughter to see in the world, despite all this darkness around us that's going on. So I brought her and some of my other girlfriends actually brought their daughters who were around the same age, like 10 years old, 10 and a half. And it was like a, a kind of an early Sunday show, I think, at the Englert. So which often are the the, the Mission Creek shows that <laughs> are a little more accessible to a wider range of the family mm -hmm. members. Um, so we brought we brought our girls and they were dancing up front. And, you know, the artists actually at times would interact with them directly, you know, say, hey, girls, look at you, you know, like, they were so welcoming in that space. And, um, you know, there, they were, there were some parts that were like suggestive and sexual. And my, I remember that my first instinct, um, and part of this is just because of the way that I was raised in America as a girl mm -hmm. to like, you know, be ashamed about sexuality and to like feel like I shouldn't be watching that or like kids shouldn't see anything like that. You know, we're not talking about like anything explicit or graphic really, but I had a reaction to it and I was like, oh, I, I, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have brought, maybe we shouldn't have brought these children, you know? And then I, you know, kind of looked to my left and right, these like little girls at like at my shoulder height or whatever. And they, their eyes were just glowing and they were like just soaking up this energy. And there was so much joy in the room. Mm. And I was like, this is actually what we should be teaching girls. We should be teaching them to be fully expressive and fully human and fully inhabiting their bodies and their sexuality and their feelings. So I talked myself back from the edge. It only took me like two and a half seconds, right? But I just had that gut reaction. And and I have I have always, ever since that moment, just been so proud that we took our girls to see that and that it they got so much joy out of it. And then some of the gals well, the little girls had to leave earlier than the rest of us big girls. <laughs> and, you know, I think I think a couple of the dads came and like collected the little ones. And and even as they were leaving, Jamila was, you know, made it a point to say from, goodbye to them from the stage because she had seen them and had really enjoyed having them there in her artistic space. Excellent performers also, yes. But it was like the experience of sharing that with my daughter and my women friends, like in community that made it such an amazing experience. Mm. Jamila. Yes, thank you, you Jamila. See her. Go go listen to her right now. I feel like I maybe <laughs> sort of saw her just by your wonderful description. So I must thank you for that and for talking about Wild Bills with us, sharing a little bit of that story and doing some extra podcasting today. Oh, my pleasure. Our song of the week is Second Mug by Iowa City artist Oboy. Oboy is a producer and composer among many other artistic mediums. 
The song comes from his 2019 album, Be Think, and can be found wherever you stream music. Here it is, Second Mug by Oh Boy. Serving the Iowa City area, Martin Construction was voted Best Home Improvement Company by Little Village in 2019 and 2020. Martin Construction is here to improve your home and lifestyle, incorporating the best design, products, workmanship, service, and trade partners, and with the lowest impact on your personal and global environment. Visit them online at andrewmartinconstruction.com. Martin Construction, member of the Greater Iowa City Home Builders Association and Johnson County Affordable Housing Coalition.
Support for this podcast comes from Friends of the Inglert. To learn more, visit inglert.org friends. Ongoing support provided by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Iowa Arts Council, a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, and by the United States Regional Arts Resilience Fund. Phase One is an initiative of Arts Midwest and its peer United States Regional Arts Organizations, made possible by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.